one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 602, for the week of Monday, January 13th, 2014. That's right. This is the first news show of season six and of the new year. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy 2014, everybody. Can't wait to get started here. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, and welcome as well, Emily Carney. Hi, happy new year. <laughs> happy new year to you as well, uh, Mark Ratterman. He had a great special for us on episode 601, and he will be joining us a little bit later with a very special interview to end this episode. But before we jump to the ending, we have to get started, so let's dive in right away, because... It's been a few weeks since we've been on, and in that period of time, commercial spaceflight has been quite busy. Uh, let's start with one of the more recent news stories, and that occurred on January 11th, 2014. And this time we're going to Virgin Galactic. We haven't mentioned them in a little while, but Spaceship Two, the rocket plane of Richard Branson's, took flight on Friday over California's Mojave Desert, and in doing so achieved its highest flight so far, reaching speeds of Mach 1.4 and reaching an altitude of 71,000 feet. It was brought up at 10.22 a.m. Eastern Time, or 15.22 GMT, to an altitude of about 46,000 feet. I gave you GMT, don't ask me to convert to meters. Uh... (laughs) And at which point, its engines fired up, and it successfully reached that altitude of 71,000 feet. And they are planning now, as everything continues, to start commercial service with passengers this year. I'm just thinking about that. Just, just we're, They're going to be commercial passengers going to basically the borderline between the atmosphere and space. Just for a little bit. These are people paying for this experience. I mean, this is 2001 type stuff. It's going to be kind of interesting to 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 watch this and, and so on. And if I believe, Sawyer, there was an announcement that we kind of covered a couple of weeks ago here that uh, I think one network was actually going to have the exclusive deal behind it, which I really wasn't too enamored with. But um, I am so looking forward to at least seeing this actually work because I think it we're we're kind of seeing the baby steps toward um toward getting uh commercial space to the masses and giving people at least a 
a shot at getting up there themselves. So fingers crossed, and uh, go get them, Virgin Galactic. We'll be watching you. Oh, yeah. I mean, so far they've had over 500 people sign up four seats aboard this, which will take them to a little bit over 62 miles or 100 kilometers up. So uh, it's great that these flights are going well. The pilots said they enjoy flying it and can't wait to see it finally enter space and begin commercial transportation of passengers into low Earth orbit. Long way from Spaceship One, I'll tell you. Long way. This is going to be exciting. However, they were not the only ones of commercial who have been making news. Last week, there was a launch, and that was by SpaceX of the Falcon 9 version 1.1. We mentioned that they had launched towards the end of last year, and their first Falcon 9 version 1.1 satellite launch from the Cape. Well, this was their second, and it looked just like the first in that it went A-OK. That launch was January 6th. 2014 at 5.06 p.m. Eastern Time or 22.06 GMT. This carried up the TICOM-6 satellite and everything worked just fine with that. The TICOM-6 satellite deployed as planned and uh, very similar to the SCS-8 launch which occurred before. Yeah, TICOM-6, I believe, is a telecommunications satellite uh, for for Thailand. Uh, it has, I believe, its range is going to be Africa and uh, the uh, Southeast Asian area there. And uh, it will be basically used for communication purposes. And uh, interesting that Orbital Sciences put together that satellite and put together both uh, the SES-8 uh, mission as well, but uh, uh, SpaceX, they had a little bit of a delay, if I remember Sawyer, on the TICOM-6 uh, attempt. I think they wanted to investigate just a little wrinkle with the, uh, with, the with the fairing, I think they had, but uh, all in all, uh, it went textbook and score one for uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, space launch capability and the U.S. Uh, commercial, commercial space capability. Uh, it's good to get this back on on the board again. I'm sorry. I'm I know I'm going to hear it from people all all around the world, but uh, uh, being a little bit jingoistic, but I'm I'm just proud that we're getting our space launch satellite capability back after so long. So I'm you know I'm raising a glass to, glass to those guys. Congrats. Exactly, and uh, they have a whole bunch of other flights scheduled for this year. We're looking about ten or eleven different flights. Three ISS resupply missions, two of them which will launch uh, second-gen data relay satellites, a couple that will launch more Asian satellites, uh, a Turkmenistani satellite, the first flight of the Falcon Heavy, some tests for their crewed version of the Dragon a little bit later, and actually, also recently, SpaceX was just given a new contract with Sky Perfect JSAT Corporation, which is Japanese, and they'll be launching the JCSAT-14 within the coming years as well. Yes, yeah, so you kind of wonder why uh, NASA went ahead and gave SpaceX the, the well, said we're going to go talk to SpaceX about leasing Pad 39A. They've got a lot of business lined up. And as Sawyer, you just pointed out, 
they've got some more <laughs> waiting in the wings too. They just signed another uh, launch capability, so they're t- another another satellite launch and another satellite provider wanting to use their services. So uh, they they're going to be awful busy, and I'm just hoping that. Uh, you know, they don't kind of get ahead of themselves a little bit and make sure that uh, things go extraordinarily well. But it sounds like they they know you know how to dot the I's and cross the T's, and uh, it, it will be very very uh, interesting to watch as as they they get their uh, their launch capabilities really really up to speed. And also Sawyer, as you pointed out, the piloted Dragon will be tested as well and I'm kind of excited to see that uh, that means that uh, commercial that the commercial crew program is you know, about ready to go ahead and, and take a bow uh, for the first time so my fingers are really really crossed about the test of the piloted dragon coming up this year and of course Falcon Heavy that that coming up uh, we're a little late with that I think because I think the initial projections uh, were toward the beginning of this year uh, to fly out of Vandenberg, but um, uh, it will eventually launch that that thing, and and it should be exciting to see how that performs. Uh, not only from obviously the visual standpoint, but also from 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 the technical standpoint. I mean, this thing can carry what is it, sixty sixty tons into low Earth orbit. I mean, it, it is it is a beast, and it's something that the nation really really needs. And I think. I think if we let we figure out new ways to leverage it, it's 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 going to be indeed an exciting time and an exciting year too. Uh, don't forget, we've got EFT one waiting in the wings as well. Oh yeah, I mean they're all keeping very busy, and like you said, SpaceX has a lot of people that they're you know launching satellites for, and um, for example, like TICOM six. And interestingly enough, TICOM six, if I am correct was made by Orbital Sciences, am I right? Oh yeah, and they've been busy too, Sawyer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the third launch within the last week or so was on January 9th, 2014, and that was of the Antares carrying the Cygnus spacecraft to the International Space Station on their first contracted resupply mission, Orb-1. The launch occurred at 1.07 p.m. Eastern Time on January 9th, which is 18.07 GMT. And just recently, yesterday in fact, on January 12th, at about 6.13 a.m. or 11.13 GMT, Cygnus was captured by the space station and was berthed at 8.05 a.m. Eastern or 13.05 GMT as the International Space Station was over Australia. And in it was a whole bunch of supplies, about 2,700 pounds of cargo aboard the Cygnus. Yep, not only that, just a few late Christmas presents that were, were to go to the crew. Because if, if you remember, this whole sorry saga uh, started just uh, before, uh, before Christmas. Uh, Cygnus was supposed to be launched uh, in that type in that time frame, just before the Christmas holiday. And of course, if people been you know, been listening to us, or if you're new here, just to go ahead and fill, fill you in, uh, the International Space Station had a little bit of a wrinkle uh, around that period of time as well. That was the uh, the coolant loop uh, loop A, which went down uh, due to a faulty uh, coolant pump. That 
precipitated a whole, you know, uh, EVA set that uh, the crew performed flawlessly to go ahead and pull out that old old pump and uh, connect up a new one. But that also kind of left Cygnus hanging a little bit. So Cygnus did not fly before the Christmas holiday as planned. Uh, there were some Christmas presents on board for the crew. I believe there were some family mementos on board, and also I believe Orbital Sciences threw some goodies uh, on board for the crew as well. So they got those Christmas presents a little late, but uh, they eventually showed up. Then we had, a, uh, I believe, the next launch attempt. It was going to be early January, which it, it turned out to, to be so, but... Even that got stopped a few a few times. One due to weather, because we, for those of you who, you know, we're not are not here in the United States. We've had a really really interesting cold snap here, and uh, that that kind of wreaked havoc with a lot of things over here, but also wreaked havoc for for uh, Antares because I think Antares has a uh, twenty degree uh, Fahrenheit limit that it could launch in. So we had to push that launch back a little forward, you know, or back to the right again to about January 8th or so. And just as the decision was being made to go ahead with the launch, word came down that there was a, uh, a solar flare event that occurred. And as folks may know, uh, some electronics that may have been on board Antares may have been impacted by that if if we launched. These are basically the uh, the uh, avionics controls uh, for Antares. Uh, in the uh, press conference that I kind of sat in on, Antares is especially susceptible, or the electronics on board Antares is especially susceptible to, to solar activity. This is something, too, that... Um, is new and that a lot of other providers are, are looking at as well. Space weather is becoming to be a really big factor. Um, whether whether or not that affected the the, um, the electronics on on board Cygnus, the answer is no, because uh, those electronics are already hardened to deal with um, you know the radiation environment that space brings, but not so much the booster technology. And that was a, a question that was asked. And uh, to be honest with you, from what I heard, uh, Orbital doesn't go ahead and harden those electronics against that because, I mean, there, there are probably several factors. One, not to mention uh, expense. It, it's, it's probably extraordinary, ex extraordinarily expensive to get... Uh, battle-hardened electronics like that installed on on the vehicle. They just didn't see the need for it because this type of thing doesn't happen all that much. But um, it's something new that they are looking at. It. They actually got NASA involved to go ahead and make sure that uh, they could proceed on January 9th. Uh, this also might affect future launches, not just with, uh, with Orbital, but other manufacturers as well. Because I don't think... Uh, like for instance, Lockheed Martin has that same type of uh, battle-hardened uh, uh, electronics on on their on their boosters. Ditto Boeing. Ditto maybe even SpaceX. I don't know enough about what what their boosters are like to go ahead and 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 say yay or nay to that. But I do know that at least Boeing and and Lockheed Martin were were mentioned. I think in in the press conference. 
Uh, but um, the launch went very well. This was also going to be the first use of the Caster 30B uh, kick motor that uh, ATK puts together for the second stage. That worked flawlessly, so ATK, good job. Uh, again, it was a flawless launch uh, from from uh, from what we we uh, we saw from our vantage point here. And uh, hats off to uh, the folks over at Orbital Sciences; they did a great job. And uh, uh, the good ship uh, uh, C. Gordon Fullerton, as Sawyer you pointed out, did dock with the International Space Station. And uh, Emily, uh, you've got a couple of things that you could probably go ahead and offer. Uh, with reference to uh, who exactly Gordon Fullerton was and why really he really deserves the honor to 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 have this spacecraft named after him. So I'll go ahead and yield the floor. Gordon Fullerton um, probably wasn't, you know, a household name astronaut. He wasn't, you know, Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong or anything like that. But um, he was somebody who's, uh, let's say, rich, I would say, rich uh, legacy in uh, not just space flight, but in uh, test piloting as well. He, I believe he was in the Air Force. He was, a, uh, he was in the MOL program, the Manned Orbiting uh, Laboratory Program, which uh, was canceled in 1969. It, it was supposed to be like a spy space station. Um, and if you're interested in that, there's a great documentary called uh, Astro Spies that PBS did a few years back, which explains the whole program. But uh, anyway, when that program was canceled, a lot of those astronauts who were young enough were absorbed into NASA as, you know, astronauts. And uh, one of them was Bob Crippen, well, one of them was uh, Richard Truly, and one of them was Gordon Fullerton. So he joined NASA, and he did a lot of uh, duties on uh, several backup crews. Before um, 1977, he was uh, selected to be one of the uh, approach and landing test crews to uh, basically test the the space shuttle Enterprise. He was partnered up with Fred Hayes, and um, they basically helped, you know, pioneer shuttle landing, which was a concept that had never been done before. Um, waited a few more years, and finally, in 1982, he went on his first space flight. So that officially made him wait almost 13 years for his first space flight from becoming a NASA astronaut. So, um, 1982, he flew on STS-3 with the uh, commander, mission commander, with Jack Lausma, and I. Uh, I had the fortunate opportunity to talk to uh, Colonel Lausma uh, last year, and we I talked about STS-3 with him because I actually re- kind of remember that mission. I was really young, but I remember it going off at my house, and so I could see the launches, and uh, we talked a little bit about that. I asked him about the landing because they had the only landing at um, White Sands, New Mexico, of any shuttle, period, So, which was very challenging. and. Uh, so I talked to him, and I was like, you know, what was it like flying with Gordon Fullerton? And Jack Lausma said, with, you know, all the sincerity in the world, he was like, he was the most professional man I've ever known. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I just got chills. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, amazing memories and stuff. And uh, So, anyway, uh, they did STS-3. They uh, accomplished most of their mission goals. Um, so that was in 82 and 1985. He flew on, um, I believe he flew on 51F, and one thing I, I remember about that mission is it had its first, uh, it was, I believe it was Challenger, and it had an abort to orbit, which was also very uh, interesting, because if you look at the uh, video on YouTube, just pull it up, um, they had a really colorful landing, so to speak, because, uh, and 
because uh, Lousma had to test auto land, um, which hadn't been used. They were not really enthusiastic about testing it. They had to land uh, in white sands, which was obviously very sandy, and they just had a dust storm and stuff. Well, 51, uh, I think it was 51F, I'm not positive, but basically uh, they had the first abort to orbit, which I'm sure scared, I wouldn't say scared, but I'm sure was a little bit of a challenge. But they made it safely to orbit. They just were a little lower than uh, initially planned. So after Gordon Fullerton's manned spaceflight missions, he uh, went back to test piloting. And he did that until his retirement in 2007. Um, I, I wish I'd never met Gordon Fullerton. I, I wish I had. Um, everybody I've talked to about him said he was just the warmest, funniest guy ever. Just, just a real delight to be around. You know, no attitude. Just really cool. Very easy to work with. So when I first heard they were naming the uh, capsule, the Cygnus capsule after him, I, I just got tears in my eyes. I was like, you know, what a great tribute to somebody who may have not have been, you know, a superstar. He wasn't a household name. You know, it, it's sad because when you got into the shuttle era of flying, everyone knew who Neil Armstrong was. Back in, back in the 60s, I mean, it seems silly now, but they were basically, you know, championed as celebrities, sort of, which is kind of weird, but... You know, given that these guys were just pilots and workers, basically, and a lot of them, you know, were military, they weren't really exposed to that culture. But once you got into the shuttle era, you know, people really didn't know who was flying on the shuttle. You know, you know, everything after a while just kind of got, you know, very anonymous. People weren't really familiar with the astronauts and stuff like that. I mean, even after a certain point, you know, for me, all the crews kind of blend in because there's so, I mean, there's just so many missions, you know. But, um... Gordon Fullerton, I think, you know, he, he was one of those people who really stood out. May have not been a household name, but, you know, he left a very rich heritage in spaceflight um, as a shuttle pioneer and obviously, you know, also in a test piloting career. You know, this is someone who really contributed to the fabric of NASA just during his whole life. So I, I think it's a very fitting tribute that they name a spaceship after him. I'm very interested to see who the next Cygnus spacecraft will be named after. To just fill in some blanks here as far as the next one, Sawyer, as you said, uh, SpaceX is going to be busy. So is Orbital. Orbital's got uh, two additional uh, Cygnus flights uh, this year, one in May, another one in October. Uh, and I believe the uh, second version of Cygnus is set to make its bow on uh, the first launch of 2015. So it's you know, Orbital is, is chugging along as well. Maybe they may not have as as much going on as, as say SpaceX is, but they've got they've they've also got a lot on their plate right now. So uh, we'll be looking at uh, Orbital with great interest coming coming down the pike in the coming years. Exactly. So as we continue along, then let's stick with the International Space Station. You know, we talk a lot here about the International Space Station, but we don't see it getting that much publicity, you know? You don't see it widely shown on TV. Well, that is about to change in March. The National Geographic Channel will be producing a live television event from what they are calling in their press release a $100 billion studio that's 250 miles above the Earth traveling at 5 miles a second. That's right, the National Geographic Channel Worldwide will be doing a television event live from the International Space Station as well as Mission Control. They'll be going on board with Rick Mastracchio and Koichi Wakata, 
with Mike Massimino, or Mass as many know him, on the ground in Houston. As they say in it, they will literally take you on a trip around the world since one orbit is 90 minutes, and the special is a few hours. So they will include a fully guided tour of the ISS, including a look into how they live aboard the space station, such as hygiene and, of course, how you go to the bathroom in space, as well as, and I find this to be the most interesting and probably one of the best decisions they've made, to conduct, as they say, quote, never-before-broadcast experiments that demonstrate the real-world value of the science conducted on the floating laboratory, close quote. So they will not only be looking at live experiments and how they affect us, but they'll also be showing more spin-offs and things that are coming from it, such as robotic systems and how they're relating to neurological surgery robots. So this, I think, is a brilliant move by the National Geographic Channel, which also happens to coincide with theirs and the Fox Broadcasting Company's Cosmos Reboot, which is also starting in March. But I think this is great and a great way to get the word out about the space station and what they're doing, especially since you can get your face in space by asking questions. <laughs> hey, Sawyer, one of the things that, that just I thought was absolutely just too darn cool was the fact that we're actually going to be watching some of the experiments being conducted. And this, as you pointed out, this is just the elixir that really the, that NASA needs right now in getting the message out as far as what's going on on the ISS and how it's going to end up really, really impacting your life going forward. And not only that, it's going to be a chance to participate and to, to interact with the crew real time, if I'm not mistaken in that, correct? We're, we're, you're going to get questions that, uh, I guess people are going to ask questions through, you know, social media or something like that, and, and or yep. be able to, oh, that's going to be, that's insane. As the press release says, quote, viewers will be able to chat via video with Mastrakio and Wakata and have their faces beamed into space to join the conversation. A first-of-its-kind second screen experience will allow viewers to track the space station while exploring the interests of people under its path, calling it a quote-unquote social media telescope. <laughs> this is too cool in plain English, and it, it I, th this will definitely bring the ISS front and center. I gotta see this. <laughs> yeah, I, not... Not just the space the space folks. I mean, I'm already jazzed about it. Just just thinking that shoot, this is this is just what we need right now to get this facility on the map, get it the attention it's due. I mean, we had a discussion here a while back ago, I think, uh, about about space flight here and why it's 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 needed and 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 so on this will get that conversation going but it'll also get get the folks understanding that nasa's not dead boys and girls the the program didn't end when the shuttle ended nasa's alive and well and doing some incredible stuff it's just like the uh just a while back ago uh i think the uh, uh the international space station was featured on nbc nightly news and that, too, I think was a good step in getting people to understand that the International Space Station 
isn't dead. It is, it, it's still there and it's still doing great science. And yes, because just because shuttle is grounded doesn't mean the United States has turned their back on, on space exploration and, and space utilization. There are two Americans on board the ISS right now. So, uh, again, this is amazing, Sawyer. Thanks so much for bringing us to our attention. No problem. And talk about getting, you know, possible attention. Obviously, not every single household that gets National Geographic will tune in. But if they were to, National Geographic Channel worldwide, and this will be in 170 different countries, including Channel 4, if you're in the UK, uh, has the chance to reach 435 million people. Wow. Just Wow. So, I mean, this uh, this is what NASA needs because, you know, we've talked before about how they don't really promote themselves very well and what they're doing. And, you know, they don't always like to toot their own horn, to use the expression. But National Geographic Channel, I think, is doing a great service here in doing so. And uh, like we both mentioned, not only getting the word out that there are people in space, but showing the experiments and making the connection back to Earth so that they can see why we're doing this. So, speaking of the International Space Station, um, they're not deorbiting it anytime soon, if I'm correct. That's very true, Sawyer. Uh, the moment we've been waiting for finally came last week. Um, also, on January 8th, as we were kind of discussing with, uh, with the Orbital Sciences launch, uh, the decision has been made uh, to extend the life of the International Space Station. Now, I, I know initially we were looking at 2020. It was sort of unsure whether whether or not we were going to continue past that. Well, the International Space Station's been given a go for uh, orbit until 2024, and I kind of get the feeling from that, from even that date, that that too might just be simply a checkpoint. I sat in on the press conference. Uh, for the announcement with uh, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier of, uh, of NASA and a few other other individuals participating in that. And Gerstenmeier was saying that he's firmly of the belief that uh, the ISS could go well into 2028 if, if we wanted it to uh, because of a lot of the equipment on board. At least that's the thought. So I get the feeling, too, 2024 may actually just be a checkpoint for 2028. But uh, Charlie Bolden, uh, NASA administrator, made a presentation to uh, the uh, president's science advisor, uh, uh, Dr. Holdren, who uh, in turn, on the basis of that presentation, uh, made a recommendation to uh, President Obama to extend the life of the International Space Station. Apparently the president had no problem doing that based on the information that uh, was presented there. Um, one of the things that uh, was mentioned, at least in, in, by the White House, was this was the second time that the ISS had received an extension, the first one being after the cancellation of, con of the Constellation program, uh, which would have deorbited the facility in 2015. Uh, it is now, you know, it extended it out through 2020 and, of course, now through 2024. Um, the international partners are excited about this prospect. 
However, they need to go ahead and work through their own governments to go ahead and get get funding and support and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not sure uh, whether or, whether or not all of those pieces are going to come together for everybody. There was some discussion about that during the press conference about uh, well, are all the nations going to be participating in this and so on and so on. Um, uh, Mr. Gerstenmeier felt that uh, indeed that was not going to be a big problem. Uh, we, I know Japan is having their issues right now. Their hands are full dealing with the aftermath of the earthquake and the tsunami and so on. But um, they seem, JAXA seems to be excited about continuing experimentation on Kibo. Uh, the Europeans are excited about uh, uh, get, keeping Columbus going. So I, I think that we, you are going to see full – I think you are going to see full participation back with all the international partners through the, the duration, at least through 2024. Um, there was still some discussion about whether, whether or not uh, we were prepared to go uh, just with Russia because Russia was a given as far as continuing ISS. Uh, the thought was, well, yeah, theoretically, you could, you know, mothball the other labs and 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 keep keep plugging along. But Gerstenmeier was saying that you know, we're kind of concentrating on the negatives here. There were still people talking about, you know, what are you going to do about our deorbit budget and all this other stuff, because Gerstenmeier uh, had indicated that the the budget that they were going to use for deorbit in 2020 will now go go for. Uh, uh, operations uh, budget budgeting is secure through 2020 for the International Space Station currently so we're good there uh, I believe the budget for ISS is about three billion a year one and a half billion I think was mentioned just for transportation costs but I have a feeling once the commercial crew program gets online uh, those costs are going to come down, uh, so so we may actually see a reduction in, in all of that. But the exciting part about it is, one, we're going to have this lab that gives us such a unique capability for the next 10 years. And just now in the pharmaceutical area and so on, we're starting to see some impact from from the International Space Station make it into into the market. In fact, um, I believe um, during the uh, press conference, Bill Gerstenmeier was saying that actually some uh, people are paying to be on the International Space Station. So uh, there is actually some paying folks that are conducting experiments and so on. So you're, you're, you're seeing some a little bit of payback in our investment here. But Really, the, the the big deal is that we have this facility not only to to study what's going on with the human organism in microgravity environments. It will help us, you know, lead to further and longer um, flights out. Meaning, it will solve some problems for us going to Mars. It'll be a test bed for the for for solving those technical problems, and yes, human physiological problems, and yeah, to a degree, human psychological issues going out to uh, to Mars, um, and beyond. So we've got this test lab here. Let's let's use it to to its full ability. 
it, it's we're starting now to to just get uh, uh, you know a a science return from this from this facility, and it, it will finally be the the national laboratory that we all want. Um, the other thing too that people should be going ahead and, and popping the, the the champagne about is that this gives commercial crew a fact a place to go for the next ten years. So they're they're all set. Ditto the commercial cargo program. That's all 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 set. Uh, so those contracts can be written can be written and and so on with no reservation at all. So that also again spurs off some more e- economic uh, activity here and 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 so on. But uh, I, I guess really the, the the main thing too is that a uh, an, an entity like Cassis, who that we've mentioned here before on on, uh, on the program, that is set up to help get people to to utilize the International Space Station to the best of their ability also can go ahead and obviously stay in business for at least another 10 years, but also will have a good market to get people enthusiastic about using this national laboratory uh, to, to the best that, that they can. So it's, it's, it's a huge, huge deal for not only for, uh, for the U.S. here, but I think for, for uh, human spaceflight overall. Uh, an exciting prospect to have this orbiting facility again for another another ten years and perhaps beyond that. So fingers crossed uh, for 2028, but extraordinarily happy for 2024. And uh, uh, the U.S. taxpayer definitely would get a return on their investment on this. Oh yeah, and always glad to see more science because I know there were a lot of people talking, like you said, about you know the deorbit plans already and there were people saying will it even last that long well yeah and I know there were also questions I saw a very interesting piece actually on this um, it was an opinion piece in the New York Times and they were talking about you know will all of the other partners continue and if so will the US continue alone and a lot of what if scenarios but it was a really interesting piece and uh, if you can find it it's a great uh, opinion piece in the New York Times uh, can I say I agree with it all? Definitely not. But it's an interesting read to see the other opinions. Yeah, and the, to echo you, sir, there's another. I'll, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, the Space Review. Uh, www.thespacereview.com. There's a similar article there too uh, in in this week's go around. Uh, Jeff Foss is a uh, is the gentleman that puts that website together. I'll give him a tip of the hat because he's always got some extraordinary individuals. Uh, writing on there, but uh, there is a blog post uh, there now about uh, who will you know who who will be returning to the ISS partnership going forward. I have a feeling it's going to be all hands on deck. Uh, I don't think that uh, other governments are going to want to step out of this. One and two, I think the partnership is too strong. I don't think a lot of governments are going to step out of this because of that. And uh, I, I think, too, that um, the ISS partnership is going to be something that we're going to leverage going forward in space exploration. I, and that's another reason why, too, I think it's going to be all hands on deck going forward. Uh, I think there's just too much excitement out there about the International Space Station. All right. So a lot of great things there with the International Space Station and with commercial 
a lot of stuff there to keep us busy. And speaking of keeping busy, Mark Ratterman has been doing just that. While we've been preparing for this show, he's been out getting some interviews. And in fact, there's some people that you might recognize, because both of these men have been on the show before. And, um, well, I'll let Mark take it away with some of NASA's best social media people. Well, this is Mark Ratterman. I have two guests with me to talk about something of great interest to many people. The uh, great interest, of course, is in things related to NASA and spaceflight, but most importantly is where we get involved in it. I'm talking with John Yembrick, the NASA social media manager, and also Jason Townsend, deputy social media manager. Gentlemen, welcome. Glad to be here. There's a lot of things that have happened since we last spoke way back on November 20th of 2012, which at this point seems like multiple, multiple years ago, even though it was only a year, a month, and a few days, but that was on episode number 436 of Talking Space, and uh, we had you guys on for a whole hour. So I thought it'd be good to get us caught up a little bit. What's happened from November 2012 when we talked, and you, I believe you said something like, uh, we've got some great stuff coming up. <laughs> well... You know, Mark, what happens is, you know, we make these plans early in the year, like we look ahead to 2013, now 2014, and we kind of get an idea, you know, what we'll be doing regarding, like, social media events. Uh, but then, you know, the technology and the community all kind of gets ahead of us, and we end up doing a lot more than we anticipate uh, just because of the nature of all the things NASA is doing. I mean, Jason and I just, just a few minutes ago actually did a, um, did like a summary of things ahead, and we just know it's just going to get ahead of us. Uh, because the, because there is so much happening in NASA year after year, this was 2014 was another excuse me 2013 was another great year for us. I mean we became the uh, most followed government account on uh, Twitter. I think right now we're around 5.6 million followers. Um, you know additionally we have over 2.5 million on Facebook, uh, 1.8 million on Google Plus, um, and we started using. Uh, more and more Google Plus Hangout on, on air in 2013. We did our first Google Plus Hangout from uh, the International Space Station live with astronauts at the International Space Station. We did one where the public could actually ask questions. You could be anywhere in the world. You can ask a question directly to space live. Uh, we had. Uh, we also did another one from with the International Space Station uh, with the cast of the recent uh, Star Trek movie as well. So we did our first uh, speaking Google Plus as well. Did we first our first news event, like a news conference? You know, traditionally we had a bunch of um, scientists and managers come out to one facility. Uh, in this case, we just had people join the hangout from all over the country uh, to tell NASA's uh, NASA's announcement for one of our IBEX missions for our IBEX mission. So uh, it was really busy, and on top of that, we also got on Instagram for the first time uh, in 2013, and right now we're, we're creeping up on 500,000 followers, and we've only been on a few months. So uh, it was another banner year for us. We also won um, our second consecutive Shorty Award for Best in Government Use of Social Media, and uh, At Mars Curiosity was recognized for Foursquare, Mayor of the Year. Uh, that's the stuff that comes to mind from, you know, off the top of my head, Mark, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's ongoing, and when we just think that things are slowing down, especially with regard to things like NASA socials, where we invite our social media followers to come out, uh, it just keeps growing and growing. You know, we not only do we do traditional NASA socials now, 
We're now doing more and more uh, integration with our news media organization. So uh, we try to include social media, an aspect of social media, in almost everything we do regarding public outreach and communication. So, for example, if we're going to have reporters talking to scientists, we also try to engage social media with hashtags or have people actually attend the events. So that's uh, something we're uh, increasing more and more. And it's not just adding social media to news events. Uh, what we're doing now is we're trying to actually have them as one world where the two integrate together nicely because uh, we do think the, the merge is happening or has already happened, and we want to be first there. Jason, you have anything to add on that? Well, and as John said, though, I mean, it has been a, a really uh, banner year for NASA social media. We actually did more NASA socials in uh, 2013 than we had done in um, any previous year prior to that. We had 22 of them. Um, and we went and we did a lot of, uh, you know, kind of historic firsts and everything, including uh, the first launch from a, a new NASA launch facility, um, a NASA social there for the Antares going to the space station. And so that was uh, really, you know, a, a historic new launch and everything. Um, and so, that's something that was, you know, different than we had done before, uh, along with uh, some others that we've uh, done before, but we were able to improve upon um, out at, you know, conferences, for example. And we did, again, our second NASA social at the AGU, the American Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco uh, this December, and that was our second time there. So we were able to kind of build on what we had done previously, and we look forward to doing that and continuing those traditions to, you know, find new ways that we can bring people in to see new things here at NASA. Here's a question I hadn't thought of until uh, you just each of you just started talking. Tell tell me briefly some moment in your NASA social work that was just one of those man I'm glad I do this. One of those super, you know, where you just feel absolutely top of the world great for being part of, of what you do. Jason, you want you want to start that one? Sure. I mean, within the the, the social media world here and everything, I, I'll be really honest that you know there's a, a couple of events that really just kind of stand out in my mind. Um, the first one was for the radiation belt storm probes, uh, which is what they were called at launch, but they have since been renamed the Van Allen probes, um, and they launched from Kennedy Space Center and everything. And it it, it was a great um, moment for the NASA social program because it was a relatively obscure mission um, that wasn't going to be getting a lot of traditional media press attention out there in the grand scheme of everything else that's going on in the world. And so as a result of that, you know, the fact that we brought in a, a group of NASA social participants into that to come and learn about the launch, hear from the science team, hear from the mission team, hear from the launch team, and really get everybody excited about that the day before launch and everything, that all of a sudden what ended up happening, because there was this huge online conversation going on around it from the NASA social participants and from all of the community that's out there that follows NASA on social media, all of a sudden that afternoon and evening as, you know, we were continuing to get further into the launch countdown leading up to launch day, we began to get more and more calls in our news center from traditional media saying, hey, I saw something about this thing that you guys are going to be launching, you know, uh, coming up here tomorrow and whatnot. Can you tell me more about it and so on? And so it was one of those things where, you know, the social media conversation began to drive some of the, so, uh, some of the traditional media conversation, um, which was pretty incredible that, you know, that was one of those moments where the tides had turned just a little bit. And and it was one of those moments where it really showed me the exact power of how the social media community can come together, can, you know, um, have an interest in space and what NASA is doing and everything, and kind of take some of the spotlight and shine it on some of those, you know, kind of dark corners back there with things that don't normally get a moment out in the sun and everything like that. And so it was a, a really great success story for what we do and, and, and why we do it and everything. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate that. 
John, how about you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there was some hesitation on combining those things together at first, Mark. You know, uh, I think, you know, there was exclusivity to news events we do, uh, and reporters just should still get complete access like they've always gotten. But one of the things that's always made me proud is when you have these national social people in the audience at news briefings, for example, and they're asking those questions that maybe the reporters didn't think of or, you know, that really are really well-informed questions because a lot of time our NASA social guests aren't just, you know, fanboys of NASA. They're also, you know, really thoughtful people that have engineering backgrounds, have science backgrounds, are just huge space enthusiasts. So oftentimes they ask questions that I've seen reporters use that those answers in their stories, uh, the quotes that come from those questions. So it's actually their... Uh, what's happening is I think the experience is getting expanded and it's becoming more inclusive for both. And I think that we're both really proud of that. If you ask my NASA social experience, the reason I probably uh, punted the first one over to Jason is because there's so many of them that I'm just proud of. You know, my first, uh, every time I go to one, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes in these marks. I mean, there is, you know, we have to go through a, a, a huge registration process and there's all kinds of logistics, you know, working out Wi-Fi and schedule and speakers. But at the end of the day, it is awesome seeing the power of these events, watching people not just at the events take pictures and write about what they're doing, but also afterwards where you see blog posts or you see, uh, you know, Instagram photos coming up and Flickr, you know, Flickr um, uh, accounts open to, to talk about some of our NASA social events that are happening. So it's really this idea that we are expanding in and it's becoming dynamic and it's getting people access where they never had before. I mean, some of my uh, favorite experiences, of course, were, were launch one to Kenny. My first one, uh, the first NASA social we did, the first tweet-up we did was STS, uh, Space Shuttle launch for STS-129. Uh, we didn't know it would work then. That was one of my favorite ones just because and really made me proud of the work we were doing because at that moment, we invited people out, uh, and we didn't understand the impact it would have, and we started trending on Twitter uh, almost instantly that morning when the event started, and we're like, this could make a difference. This could be an, have a huge impact, and, and, you know, here we are five years later. We're still doing it. There was some question because of resources and time, whether this was worth it, but I think that question's been answered, and we're going to keep doing this in the foreseeable future. Let's go on into 2014. Um, what's ahead? I mean, I know there's some things I'm already seeing on your website, and let's mention the website, too, uh, as you talk about what's ahead and how people find out about it. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, platforms out there that, you know, one of the things we were talking about actually this morning, Jason, is our, you know, our reach on Instagram, and one of the frustrating parts was we weren't on sooner. You know, we and Len came on last year. You know, we really wanted to be on sooner than we were. We think Instagram was really a natural fit for NASA as us being such a visually oriented uh, organization. So there's other platforms. I can't say right now which ones those are, but other ones we're going to delve into that we think will have a rich different audience and really help tell NASA's story better than we've done before. So I think that's something you'll see more in 2014. We have a process in place that we're hoping will streamline us getting on platforms a little bit more. Uh, that's one thing that pops in my mind right now. You know, we, you know, Google Plus Hangouts uh, on air have been kind of an experience, uh, experiment for us. Uh, I think you're going to see more and more of us taking some of those news events like we did. I mentioned earlier we did an IBEX news conference on Google Plus using the Google Plus Hangout. I think we're going to do that again. It seemed to work well. Reporters could dial in just like they do phone bridges at news briefings. But one of the nice things is people don't have to fly from all different areas. It really saves the government money and time and resources just to get everybody together on a Google Plus Hangout. They can do it right from their own office from whatever NASA facility they're at. So you'll see a lot more of that. Those are the things that pop in my head right away, uh, Jason. 
Well, we'll continue uh, the NASA social program where we have uh, our social media followers out for a variety of different agency milestones and events that we want to share with everybody and, and have them take part in uh, what's going on. But uh, there's a couple of big, exciting things that are coming up this year. Um, you know, we're going to have uh, Exploration Flight Test 1, um, where we're going to be testing out the Orion capsule and everything. So that'll be, uh, I think, one of the, the big highlights that's coming up. Uh, in the year ahead. Uh, we're also going to be looking at um, doing uh, the year of the Earth and some of the things that's happening out there since we have several Earth science missions uh, that are going to be launching this year. Um, but we're also looking at celebrating things like, you know, 50 years of the Deep Space Network and, and looking at celebrating uh, some of the other milestones that the agency is going to be having in 2014. So overall, you know, it's going to be a, another hopefully banner year ahead for, for NASA Socials. In talking about the uh, Google Plus Hangouts, it would seem that with a Google Plus Hangout, if you miss it, you missed it. Is that true? Yes and no. I mean, if you're going to ask live questions during the Hangout, uh, you've missed it. You're right. You can no longer uh, get those answered, you know, obviously live the same way. But, you know, we also put hashtags out for these events, and we try to go in and answer questions people may have afterward. The nice thing about all of our Google Plus Hangouts on air is they live forever on the Internet. You know, there is a, there's a YouTube uh, link that we put out afterwards where people can, can revisit the event. We started off doing them, and they were kind of lengthy. I think each event was around an hour long. We're really trying to make them a little shorter, more concise uh, out there so people can actually, they're more consumable for viewers. You know, that's one of our biggest challenges, Mark, is that, you know, we're still an organization that is focused around communicating to news media. Uh, so one of the things we really try to do is create products that are more consumable for the general public, whether that is short little video clips, animation, uh, animated GIFs, things that really help tell our story using the digital technology that's out there. And so that's what Google Plus Hangouts allow us to do, and it is something that lives on and on even after the event occurs. Yeah, just a couple of days ago, I went down to Cape Kennedy, actually, to AstroTech and saw the Tedris L satellite that was being prepped for launch. There is a NASA social for Tedris L, am I right? Yes. Uh, the 23rd of January, we'll be having a one-day NASA social event uh, that is basically going to, because the time of launch, we can do it all in one day, which is going to include tours and a launch viewing for the general public. In fact, uh, registration, I believe, for that closes in 30 minutes from now, which um, which uh, we have a pretty good group of people we've seen have already applied for it. So we're excited for that. Pretty much any launch we do, Mark, we try to do some sort of social media event, whether it's a full-up NASA social or NASA social accreditation. Uh, we try to do something around launches because those are such special experiences. Well, let's go back to that dark and stormy time of October 2013. Dare I say, sequester, government shutdown, how did it affect the social media program? Yeah, well, the social media program, like many things in government, you know, had to shut down. You know, we were no longer communicating what NASA was doing on our social channels. So our preparation for that was letting all, you know, we managed the social media accounts throughout the whole agency. Uh, so basically our job was to notify all the people at the field centers uh, and the different account managers uh, to follow certain protocols. And that was basically uh, let folks know that they were, uh, that the accounts were going to be closed. Um, and uh, I'm just generalizing here. And then, of course, uh, once the government was shut down, we were not permitted to actually post anything, which was easy, frankly, because there wasn't any NASA news coming out at that time. No one was working. Uh, so one of the amazing things that happened, and because Jason and I are constantly amazed, is that the community um, was frustrated by this. You know, So they went on there and they uh, started 
uh, started communicating NASA news without us. It kind of took a life of its own as a consequence, and that was really exciting to see. I don't know how many powerful brands are out there that, that people will do that for. What kind of community we have and we built over the years is really a testament uh, to that effort. Yeah, I'll just jump in here. The, the, uh, the, the community came together and pulled together around a common hashtag of things NASA would tweet or might tweet. And so they, uh, they put out literally thousands of their own tweets that were about a variety of things that were happening uh, during that time because our missions were still collecting science data and things like that where they were, even though we were you know, not here in the office and so on. And so the community really stepped up. And it was one of those moments that you know, John and I reflect back on uh, from time to time and really, uh, you know, go, wow, you know, we've got an incredible community of followers that are out there and everything, and the fact that they were more than willing to, you know, kind of take up their own time, um, you know, in their own lives and, and kind of share some of the stuff that's going on out there was a pretty incredible testament to, uh, you know, both the uh, people who make up the community and the, 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 the fact that NASA plays such an important role in their life. So, you know, that was really incredible. By chance, do you have a number of social media accounts that, that NASA feeds? I know there's many for, for different centers, for missions, etc. Do you know what the total is? Sure. So we've got, you know, uh, right around 475, uh, give or take a, a few there. Um, and that literally encompasses all of the NASA flagship accounts. That encompasses each of the NASA centers that's out there and all of their accounts, um, plus each of the missions and programs that have social media accounts out there across a variety of platforms. And so, you know, at this point, as John mentioned, we've recently expanded onto Instagram. And so we now have, you know, several new um, accounts that have opened up on Instagram and are sharing news from different missions and centers uh, as well as our flagship account out there. Um, you know, and we're, we're always looking at you know, new ways that we can communicate the information and, and continue to expand our footprint, but do it in a strategic way um, that really connects and resonates with uh, the folks who are going to be following us in, in, in ways that can really help share and shape our news that we have that's out there. Is there anything that you'd like to just toss in as a, uh, you know, you've got the microphone and here's something I'd like to mention? Yeah, I'll just say, you know, there's, you know, though we're constantly expanding, Mark, you know, one of the things that, you know, we could do a better job at is uh, engaging, you know, influencers on social media, people that we really want to reach different demographics. And while we're doing great things like NASA Social and we're reaching a lot of different people in different, different fields, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people out there, especially some of the demographics we really care about, like, um, you, know, as, you know, younger teenage girls that want to get them interested in science and engineering and technology, uh, you know, that we still need to do a better job of reaching. So I think that's one of our challenges of 2014, find ways uh, to expand our audience. You know, we really at NASA, we have a story, we believe we have a story that really touches everybody, you know, one way or another, whether you're interested in, you know, the origins of the universe and our place in it, or whether you're interested in, you know, aeronautics and how NASA is making air traffic safer for folks, you know, whether you're interested in, or, you know, climate change, all of these various things we're doing, you know, the, inter the, the human life sciences research we're doing on the International Space Station, you know, it can, it's affecting people here on Earth. And whether you are, you know, uh, someone living in, you know, middle America or you're someone, you know, living in Africa or Asia, everywhere around the world, NASA is touching people's lives, and it's really our job uh, and the challenge we have to make NASA relatable uh, to everyone in there. People ask us who our audience is. 
and it really is the world. You know, it is humanity, and that's kind of um, that's kind of a large scope. But uh, that's uh, you know we have uh, you know 5.5, 5.6 million followers on Twitter. Uh, there's no reason why that shouldn't be you know 20 million people, 30 million people. I feel like we have a story that really resonates with every American, every person on this planet, and and that's really something that we need to to do our best in expanding our reach on. And an important website that people would uh, want to save as a favorite would be www.nasa.gov/connect. Every time I go there. It's like, wow, where do I start and how much time do I have to look around? That's one of the biggest challenges for us, Mark, is we have too much stuff sometimes. You know, there's so much content. Where do you start? And we really tell people that ask us that question, you know, go to the flagship accounts. Just do the general, you know, at NASA, you know, uh, on Twitter and on, on Facebook and Google+. Plus. You know, follow us on the flagship accounts and find out which tweaks your interest, sparks your interest, rather, and then, uh, then you can follow those smaller accounts. And if you're interested in astronomy, Obviously, at NASA underscore Hubble is where you'd want to go, uh, and some various other, uh, you know, telescopes and, uh, you know, astrophysics accounts that we have out there. But, you know, maybe you don't know exactly what, re- what uh, resonates with you, so follow our flagship accounts. Uh, it's, we really tell the broad NASA story there. Outstanding. John and Jason, thanks for being on Talking Space. Anytime. Thanks again, Mark. Indeed. Thank you very much. Once again, a huge thank you to Mark as well as to Jason Townsend and John Yembrick. And yeah, thanks a lot, guys. So that was that was just amazing. I appreciate the time you everybody took to uh, participate in that. Exactly. And once again, the link that Mark mentioned to get more on that and everything they're doing with social media is www.nasa.gov/connect, and that will be in the show notes. And with that, that brings the first news episode of 2014 to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. A remote thank you to Mark Raderman for that. And as well, a thank you for joining us tonight, Gene McCulka. Thank you, and again, a tip of the hat to Mr. Mark Raderman. Thanks a whole lot. That was just amazing. And to Jason and John as well for their time. Yes, indeed. And speaking of thank you for your time, thank you as well, Emily Carney. Thank you. I'm honored to be back. Thank you. Glad to have you back in the new year, and it is a new year of Talking Space. We've got a lot coming up this year, our fifth year on the air. So stay with us, because we've got some great things coming, and there's a lot happening in the space world in 2014. We hope you'll be along with us for the ride. Until then, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 